it's funny, when you say fashion tech in San Francisco or New York, they mean like shopping apps. But when you say fashion tech in a place like Bangladesh, where 90% of their economy is driven by the garment industry, they're thinking automation, 3D printing, things that are going to replace jobs of garment workers. Hey guys, welcome to Bluemix Podcast. Um, today we have a great shout out to mention, um, shout out to MCRO for becoming a continuing sponsor for the, for the podcast. So this episode and future episodes is going to be brought to you by MCRO, who enables businesses to grow through handcrafted digital solutions of the future. MCRO is a web and mobile app development studio with a competent, dedicated, and experienced team focused on solving business challenges through fast-to-market and producing high-performance digital products. If you're looking to turn your destructive ideas into reality or have a reliable strategic tech partner to explore options with uh, for your existing work or for new work, reach out to us and we'll make the introduction for MCRO and you can have the conversation over a coffee or a bone shaker IPA, your choice. And we're live, Amanda, perfect. I gotta stop saying we're live because we're not really live. But, like, but it's on. Yeah, I like to feel that we're talking live to an audience. Yeah. But uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Ravi. Um, so this is the Bluemix podcast. Um, you came on here to really showcase your ideas, but I'm excited to have to actually learn a little bit because this is a topic that you, what you cover is super interesting, right? The intersection between fashion and technology and what that means. A lot of people have talked kind of obliquely about this. Uh, there's a lot of different ways of thinking about this. I'm super interested in seeing your thoughts on it. Um, so yeah, you describe yourself as one part cheek, one part uh, geek. Geek, right? <laughs> yeah. um, what does that mean? So, well, I think I'm half fashion, half tech. I really am a person who sits at the intersection of fashion and technology. Growing mm. up, um, I grew up in the fashion industry. My okay. parents were tailors and my grandparents were tailors. So we kind of have a history of fashion, but yeah. I was always an early adopter when it came to technology. I brought a laptop to school in high school before like anyone was ever doing that. I was one of the first people in my um, high schools to have a cell phone, like nice. back before it was like that peanut shaped Fido phone. Mm -hmm. So I've always been fascinated with uh, with technology and with the rise in wearables and smart fashion, we're seeing this kind of overlap um, between geek and chic. And so that's that's kind of where I insert myself and that's where I've found uh, a home for myself in the professional world. Amazing. So what did that look like? So you really like technology. Um, how did that play with fashion? Because that's not, it's generally become a new thing now, mostly even Apple's movement, right? To turn technology into like luxury, luxury goods that now people kind of use towards fashion, right? So what do you mean by when you want to combine fashion and like technology? What does that look like for you? Yeah, so it's not necessarily that I want to combine fashion and technology. It's more that I noticed an intersection that was happening in a way that perhaps it wasn't happening before. Okay. Uh, so when we saw the emergence of wearable technology, and I'm talking even before the Apple Watch, we started to notice technology making its way onto the body in new and unprecedented ways. And we were calling that wearable tech, and by we I mean myself and the 
community um, mm. in the area. We were calling that wearable tech, but uh, fashion tech really speaks to the way that design can play into not only the technology we wear on the bo body, but also lifestyle technology. Um, and it even stretches out into retail and to manufacturing. Essentially, the idea is that technology is disrupting everything. We already know that. Um, but I'm focused specifically on how technology is disrupting the fashion industry. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. So, like, let's talk about some case examples here, right? Like, uh, let's give some tangible ideas. Okay, so... How is it, how is it doing that? Well, okay, so my career as a journalist started when I had a story for the national newspaper, The Globe and Mail, mm -hmm. and this was my first big break as a journalist, and this is how I got into covering wearable technology, which then became uh, my interest in fashion technology. Mm -hmm. But basically, I had graduated with a degree in literature and professional writing. I was trying to work in the world of ideas, and I was pitching all types of arts and culture editors, and I was having no traction. I was just mm -hmm fresh out of university, and I wasn't getting anywhere. Then I noticed that there was a guy um, coming to Toronto to speak, and his name was Neil Harbison, and he was a self-identified cyborg. <laughs> and I'll get to what that means in a second, okay. but I pitched the article to the, the, to the editor of the Globe and Mail, who was Shane Digman at that time, and my subject line was, story idea, a cyborg comes to town. And of course, with a subject line like that, you have to open up the email. And so he read the pitch, he approved it, and I wrote my first article um, you know, ever, really, uh, for a national publication. And that really kind of solidified my interest in this area. And so Neil, um, the cyborg that I'm mentioning here, he is really interesting because he has an antenna, osseo, integrated into his forehead. And what that means is it's attached to the bone. Mm -hmm. So it's an antenna that starts at the back of his head and comes out here in front of his skull. And I tell this story so often, people are like, what do you mean? Is this real? You can Google him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's real. And he had that inserted uh, so that he could hear color because Neil was born colorblind and he was also born an artist. And so imagine being an artist and being colorblind. And so the antenna sends out vibrations to his skull that he then identifies as different colors. So certain vibrations sound like different colors. And uh, yeah. he's now had, had this opportunity to have an extra sense. So it's kind of like an imposed uh, synthesia uh, where you're experiencing colors as sound and vice versa. And meeting Neil and hearing his story just made me so fascinated with the way that culture is overlapping with technology and about how technology is making its way onto the body, being embedded into not even our clothing, but our skins. So through interviewing Neil and having that piece published with the Globe and Mail, I became fascinated in this wonderful world of wearable technology. I met a gentleman by the name of Tom Emmerich, who's a leading uh, wearable technology and now augmented and virtual reality writer and thinker. And uh, I just made and grew this network of people who were really looking into the future of what does it mean that we're putting technology so close to our body. And so I really started in the wearable and tech on the body space, but a few years ago, we had what was called the retail apocalypse. So mm -hmm. a lot of retailers were closing down and um, retail was shifting so much. And this was because of the transformation that digital technology, online shopping, Amazon was bringing to retail. And I realized that it wasn't just 
wearables and fashion and apparel itself that technology was changing. It was actually the retail experience, how we're trying on things, how we're ordering things, how orders are being fulfilled. So the apparel and retail areas I worked on for a little while. And then more recently, I've become interested in manufacturing and manufacturing technology. So last year, I had the opportunity to go to Bangladesh. And it's funny, when you say fashion tech in San Francisco or New York, they mean like shopping apps. But when you say fashion tech in a place like Bangladesh, where 90% of their economy is driven by the garment industry, they're thinking automation, 3D printing, things that are going to replace jobs of garment workers, right? So it's really, it's really interesting to try and define fashion technology. It really depends who you ask and where you are in the world. But at Electric Runway, we sort of focus on those three different verticals. Awesome. Um, that's a lot to digest, right? I know. There, right? Sorry, so I'm like throwing it all at you no, right now. No, no problem. <laughs> let's, let's go through that, right? So... It's, it's, it, so you're more of a journalist, like uncovering the different aspects of these things. And uh, let's talk about a potential future you see. Like, what are the trend you see we're going towards? Like, and what would you predict? Like, let's make a prediction here, right? Or yeah, well, I think that, like I said, technology is making its way onto the, the body. It's becoming involved in our clothing, and I think it's going to be um, embedded into our skin pretty soon. We're already starting to see early mm -hmm. examples of this happening. Um, you know, with uh, colloquial, uh, colloquial implants, like hearing aids, uh, things like that, but also people who are experimenting with sensors and chips. I was just in Barcelona recently, and I had the opportunity to interview a lady by the name of Moon Ribias, and she uh, had a seismic sensor um, implanted into her foot so that it vibrates every time there's movements in the tectonic plates of the Earth. Um, so she does this so that she can feel more connected to the movements of the earth. She's a dancer and a performing artist. And so the intensity of the vibration correlates with how big the earthquake is. And so through that, she feels more connected to the earth, but she's also a cyborg as well because she has this different extra sense. So yeah. I think that people are already beginning to hack their senses and to um, experiment with what can be done in terms of um, having extra senses. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think it's a really interesting future. Um, I think in the future, we're also going to look at our jackets and say, you know, my jacket lights up or my jacket heats up. What does your jacket do? Mm -hmm. Oh, this is just a dumb shirt. It doesn't do anything. It's just red. Yeah. Right. So clothing that's able to regulate to regulate our temperature, to keep us comfortable. If you think about it, clothing has always existed to protect our body from the elements and to signify either status or, you know, membership. And it's going to continue to do that, but in just more digital ways. Mm -hmm. So I really like the transhumanist side of what you're talking about, right? Like, I've been, have you been following that movement a lot? Like, oh, for sure, yeah. So that's what you mean by these extrasensular kind of capabilities. So it's not just, um, I, you know, a jacket that might change color on the fly, but it can give you feedback in a different way. Yeah. Um, it's one of the interesting things that, that technology promises, right, that makes us more than what we are right now. And it, it comes, kind of comes back to the conservative argument of should we, right? 
yeah morality wise and but i think it's already too late to ask that because we already are and mm -hmm. i know that like elon musk for example has a very um skeptical view on the future of transhumanism and he envisions a future where there's like this second class of citizens and the you know the expensive or so the wealthy will be able to upgrade and be able to be better faster stronger whereas the people who don't have the financial means will be like the plebs sort mm. of like the rest of <laughs> yeah. civilization and if there was ever to become a war he imagines this kind of like very sci-fi future where the people who are better faster and stronger are going to win out over the people who haven't been upgraded um, my view on this actually recently changed when i interviewed that lady who i spoke with um, moon ribias in barcelona because she was talking about it's not necessarily upgrading your senses transhumanism can be about um you know for example she has the sensor in her foot so it doesn't necessarily make her better than everybody else it just makes her different mm. because to some being able to sense the tectonic shifts in the earth might be awful they might hate that she really enjoys that experience and so that's how she has choose to hack her body um, in order to be a cyborg so maybe for myself i would choose a different route i would choose a different way of um, having extra senses mm. um, so i think that we have to be careful when we talk about transhumanism in the language of like hacking the body to make yourself better than everybody else. Um, but it is interesting, right? It is interesting when you think about people who are in the Paralympics, right? Like we don't think of them as having, um, you know, uh, extra, an extra ability or whatever like that. We think, we think, what am I trying to say here? Sorry. When you look at the Special Olympics, right, the Paralympics, if someone has um, a leg that makes them faster, we don't necessarily look at that as a means for disqualification. It's just like that's what they have to do to compete. You're speaking to the fact that now their prosthetics are so good that makes them almost faster than normal runners. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what are we going to do when we get to the point where, um, you know, we're going to have to have an Olympics for cyborgs where it's like how have you hacked your body to be even faster than or better than or stronger than? So, yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting to think about it that way, but I think that it's, it's not just about better, stronger, faster. It is about just like other senses. Mm -hmm. Like what if we could sense more like animals? What if we could sense more like the environment around us? I think that's an interesting area to explore. Yeah, and that's the capability of like changing who we are though, right? Like this is one of the fears about it. Um, the idea that humans are changing. Yeah. But um, when you look back at it really, like the, what humans are have always been a constant change. Like, and based on technology, right? Yeah. Because like the hammer, which is an early technology, changed what humans were able to do mm -hmm. in their environments. And digital technology has, is already changing our lives. Like I spent two hours on TikTok yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> that is not something that normally would have happened yeah. 10 years ago because that digital technology didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So I think that to say, oh, transhumanism is going to change us and we should worry about that. I feel like digital technology has already changed ourselves how we communicate our social interactions it's already done that yeah um knowing like seeing how well versed you are in this field like are you familiar with the game um cyberpunk no tell it's, me about it so it's uh it's called cyberpunk 2077 it's based on a, a previous like a previous franchise it's a remake and it's expected to come out next year it's one of the most hype games coming up right now it's kind of like um um what's it uh grand theft auto okay but in the future with cyborgs okay with transhumanists so you, in the future in this kind of future you can upgrade yourself to make yourself better stronger faster 
right? You can take off your eyes and have them replaced by mechanical eyes. That okay. Are more, more so kind of like the Matrix. Exactly. Okay. Kind of like the Matrix, but but actual physical component hardware right. that makes you everyone better. And everyone's kind of connected through the web to a mental to a mental link. Oh, that's very cool. That, that gives them all the extra capabilities. So because you're connected, you can do more. And criminal organizations are able to acquire high end high end equipment are better to be are more effective. Wow. Right. And you're pretty much fighting as an outlaw trying to survive within this like very bleak kind of future where like people with money are abusing these kind of uh, abilities. Wow. Right. And it's a very bleak kind of future. And uh, I'll have to check that out. It sounds like Ready Player One almost. Right? Kind of. Yeah. Very dark version of it. Yeah. Right? Very um, Keanu Reeves is in it. Right. He's one cool. of the characters in it. So it's a really hyped up game. But anyways, like it kind of points a very bleak future if you have future. And like you hear a lot of dystopian kind of um, the cultural icons right now coming out, right? Which are movies, uh, the books are all themed at more dystopian kind of use of technology of being uh, technology being used against us, right? Um, I mean, you've talk a, talked a little bit about how you know people who can upgrade themselves can afford this kind of tech first, can rapidly become out, outperform people who are you know who don't have the same kind of capabilities. It's like imagine like a person today with an access to a smartphone comparing them to somebody who right now is in a country unconnected, you are seeing two classes of people kind of emerging there. People who are connected, right? 1.6 billion people who are connected to smartphones are kind of more effective and more uh, have, have greater ability than people, who, an, an agency, than people who don't or are not connected. And though we are getting this new burst of all these people, like millions of people right now, every month are now signing up for the first time ever and into the internet and being connected and getting access to this kind of movement and things rapid shifts in cultures now in these third world second world nations as people come online and connect with the rest of the world mm -hmm. and what's going to be like what i'm really interested in is see how trends kind of shift back and forth kind of and that's one of the interesting things about fashion right like it kind of points to like a like a part of like the of a, like a human collective consciousness where like things are always evolving yeah, and absolutely. You can see kind of like the deeper layer of like human interaction by the cultural kind of um, the fashions almost, right? Yeah, I think fashion has always been both a reflection of but also a prediction of culture. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting to your point about, you know, this kind of bleak future that some of these sci-fi movies are painting. I think that science fiction has always done that, especially like speculative science fiction. It's yeah. always done that. And it's taking this idea of like, what if we can hack the human body and break it down to its core component parts and then sell those parts back to humans that they can decide if they want to be upgraded. Mm. Um, if you look at Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is, you know, predates digital technology, that book was very much about the anxiety of <laughs> the human body and the integration of technology into the human body. Um, so it's kind of an angst that's been around for a really long time, but I'm optimistic about what humans will do with technology. And the reason I'm optimistic is because I'm an optimist, number one, but I look at, you know, in countries like Bangladesh, where they are getting connected and mobile phone use is kind of prevalent now. They're coming up with technologies that are enhancing their lives and specifically the lives of girls and women. So I'll mm -hmm. give you an example. There's this thing called Bcash in Bangladesh. And what it is, it's basically mobile banking. And so I mentioned earlier that 80 to 90 percent of Bangladesh are garment workers and most of those are women. So female garment workers at the end of the week or at the end of the month when they would get their payout, the uh, factory owner would give them cash. And by the time they got home, the chances of them either getting robbed of their cash 
or having a husband or brother take their cash from them was very high. So women weren't actually being elevated in society because they were getting cash and they weren't able to keep it in their pocket. Mm. But with Bcash, which is a mobile app, women are now allowed to be paid through their banking. So it's funds that are transferred into a smartphone, you know, bank that lives on the cloud on their smartphone. And so they can't be robbed of that on their way home where their husband or brother can't take that from them. And so you've seen the status of women rise in places like Bangladesh. That wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for digital technology. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm optimistic about it. Nice. Yeah, that's one of the great equalizers is technology, right? It gives people more on a level playing playing field and allows them to like really take on their specialized gifts that they have. Um, and that's one of the exciting things. Like, uh, I think in India, like the crazy number hit like during peak in the last two years, like what what fifty thousand people sign up on the internet. Wow. Right to the internet every month. Wow. You could even more than that. I I I got to double check, but like. They're coming on for the first time ever, and they're coming on through smartphones with access to all these different tools they can utilize, right? Getting access to information instantly, access to communication. And, well, I mean, so we talk about the evolution of the internet, right? Like going back to that game and, and about the, going to the like, human minds being connected, right? Like the internet first evolved as the web, the independent computers connecting to each other. Then the internet became like interlinking websites coming together. Now we're talking about IoT where devices communicate to each other through us. Um, I mean, next case being like, how do we communicate directly, right? How does one thought get transferred to another person? Yeah. And how that will radically change us culturally. Yeah, Neuralink, right? you're talking about like Elon Musk and that kind of idea as well. Right. I think it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little scary and I'm not one who easily scares with the technological innovation, but mm -hmm. I think that... Uh, yeah, maybe it'll bring us closer together or maybe it'll be a, you know, <laughs> yeah. we'll kind of like let the the cat out of the bag and we won't know how to put it back in sort of thing. Like, I don't know if that's the right metaphor, but just this idea of like unleashing um, this new uh, form of communication that we can't put back. Like, do you really want to know everything that people are thinking about you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but I do like the idea of a collective consciousness. I think that the internet in a way is sort of a collective consciousness. Yeah. And so... Technology is a great equalizer, but it's also fraught with the same kind of stereotypes and gender biases and all kinds of things that um, the people who created it have. So it's not um, it's not perfect, but yeah. it's it's made to be iterated on collectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean that's what the interesting thing is. I think we're seeing emerging now with the, with the technology is this global consciousness, a global mind, right? Like kind of like a mind of of all of humanity put together, like. In the, like what are brains except like like the, like uh, things that think but also in, uh, transact with each other right mm -hmm. like right now our broadcasting capabilities is by our physical communication like our verbal communication body language right the more information you can tra you can transmit to each other right the more you can uh, understanding there is mm -hmm. so if you if I can only hear you right that's a, that becomes the only kind of interaction our my brain has to to another brain that's only that's a limit but if you can see your facial features and understand, uh, I, I can understand you more, but understand your intent. It's more information coming in, right? So YouTube, like one of the interesting things about YouTube is it's become so easy now to upload content. Now what you're doing is like, it's almost like the printing uh, press all over again, where the printing press made it easy to uh, copy and paste and uh, distribute like the, the written word. You can do that now with the spoken visual word, right? Like you can put up yourself now talking with full, like uh, intent, 
uh, up into the universe and into, into partial content that can be viewed over and over again. Um, and this, and then for the first time, it's massively available, and that itself has changed how information flows. Oh, absolutely, yeah, no doubt. Right, like now, like you can go online right now and learn basically almost anything. Mm -hmm. uh, information is so freely available, and that's boosting people. Where before, like the institutions used to have these paywalls. You want to learn something, pay us, right, or pay me, and I'll teach you this. Knowledge is free and transactable. So what happens when like it's no longer like it's something you have to go out and learn, but can just be placed right into your mind. <laughs> That's definitely in the matrix. Right. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what happens. Um, I think that as humans, we're, we're sort of programmed to learn. Yeah. And we want to do better and be more creative and, and acquire new knowledge. I don't know that knowledge can necessarily be downloaded the way that we're kind of thinking. I'm thinking of that particular scene where, you know, Keanu Reeves, like, yeah. you know, all of a sudden he learns how to fight in a certain yep. style and he yep. learns like a certain language and it's just downloaded onto the body. I think that um, knowledge is not something that can, that can be transferred that way mm -hmm. because I don't think that knowledge is just cognitive. And this kind of opens up a whole other yeah. <laughs> rabbit hole of a conversation. But I think that um, experience and the physiology of experience is, is really important to, um, to understanding how something works or how to do something. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, let's talk a little bit about data collection, right? Like one of the biggest issues right now is privacy and data. Um, with wearables and all these de devices now becoming enabled on our bodies, like they're becoming like extrasensory objects, right? Giving us feedback on ourselves in like a very high context kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the major issues is who who's the data for? It's not directly coming to you. You're accessing it through a middleman who's then selling it or uh, to people who are now want to use that data to like understand you to sell things better to you. Yeah. A, yeah. I mean, it's a trade-off. So for example, like we use Google Maps and we know that Google is collecting that information to both better service, but then also to have that kind of hive mind that you were talking about earlier, right? Mm -hmm. But if Google Maps didn't exist, I probably wouldn't have gotten here today. Yeah. I wouldn't know how. Yeah. So there's a trade-off. Um, I think the same thing is true with wearable technology, where yes, you are giving your personal data away as well as your physical body data away. Um, but the trade-off is, is that you can be better connected to your health, you can be better connected and in control of your own um, physiology and your body. And I think that a lot of people are willing to make that trade-off um, in order to have access to these insights. Yeah. I'm not necessarily scared that someone's gonna, um, you know, steal my heartbeats per minute or like how many steps I did yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a day. I'm not too afraid of that. Um, but, you know, I'm also not the person to be scared of technology. As mm -hmm. I said before, like I'm usually the optimist and I'm my role has been to champion the technology, but then also to be curious about it as well. And to ask the sort of data privacy experts about, you know, the ins and outs of how these different apps and hardware devices work. Absolutely. But my, my real concern is like, I, I feel that the privacy concern, the privacy scandals are really dampened the use of like wearables now. Like even my watch, I, sometimes I keep it off just because how annoying it sometimes yeah. gets, right? And like, Or have you ever had that moment where you're like talking to your friend and Siri pipes in and she's like, I don't know, da, da, da. And you're like, when were you part of this conversation? Exactly, how dare every, you insert yourself? Yeah, right? I think everyone sort of had that moment. Right, and I think like there's so much promise, there's so much that you can do with this data information that these kind of hurdles are kind of 
preventing us from getting there sooner. Um, like for instance, like there's this great tech that came out of Boston. Um, it's about like a, a kind of a smart uh, wearable material. It's a smart material that uh, for women who are menstruating will give you direct feedback on your fertility, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, it interfaces directly with your body and gives that information. But because people are un- so unclear about where the where the uh, where the uh, the data would end up, or the privacy concerns and the squeamishness of that, the product had a hard time taking off yeah. and still does. Right? Yeah, well, digital technology has problems taking off when it requires that intimate relationship with the user, and nothing's more intimate than literally like your intimate area as a woman. Mm. Um, I think that's also why Google Glass had a hard time, is like the face was just too intimate of an area for, for you know, 2007 or whatever it is that it, that it came out of the gate. So I think that um, people still have to be comfortable with adopting the technology. And so there are other ways of doing it like there can be passive devices that aren't necessarily giving you feedback right away or you know aren't necessarily inserting themselves into the conversation but are just maybe in the background a little bit more yeah um but yeah i mean it's a i think that collectively we need a sort of bill of rights when it comes to what it means for data privacy online and uh, that's something that we're forming, right? Yeah. Like we're really in the early days of the internet, so we're just kind of collectively bargaining and and uh, forming our rights. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's one of the things. Like you, you, you're like pretty much went to the point where I wanted to go to was the ability of having better access over our rights, especially when it comes to data and privacy. Um, I mean, do you feel like if there was a, well, if there was an ability for us to come together and form like a kind of like a independent bodies like that internationally is ma- ma- managed to manage our data right would you feel more trusting about what the data what end up happening with it yeah we're seeing parts of europe and the uk do that right um yeah. that's the way that they're moving towards with um something as simple as like email collection um i i mean I think that right now it's the companies that are leading it. So if you're it's this, in the hands of private companies, right? exactly, it's up to these companies to be um, upfront about how they're using your data. But it was interesting because um, when I was at CES, the Consumer Electronics Show last year, um, this was just after there was a huge uh, breach with Google, and mm-hmm. Apple had run all of these ads around uh, the Las Vegas Strip, where all of the journalists and tech enthusiasts were staying, and they had run these um, physical ads that said, you know, what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. So they've kind of folded it into their brand that like, we are secure, we are transparent about what we're doing with your data. And I think that it's become part of a brand proposition to, um, you know, have that relationship with your consumer and be upfront about about data use and collection. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's become like, it's become part of integral to your brand. To be able to give that to your users and to um, uh, to your uh, consumers. Right? Yeah. Um, cool. So, what about you? Like, anything you're excited about right now? Like, any kind of tech or anything coming out? Yeah. So, right now, I'm working on an article that is about fidgetal clothing, which is okay. the um, the combination of fid- physical and digital clothing. Um, and this is uh, specifically about clothing that. Um, doesn't exist in real life, but only exists in our sort of online life. Yeah, so there's how do you pronounce a, that? Like, fidgetal, like it's fidgetal? Half, like yeah. the beginning of physical and then the end of digital. Okay. So a designer that I'm particularly interested in right now, um, a design agency is called The Fabricant, and okay. they are uh, based out of 
of the EU somewhere, I, I, where it is escapes me right now, but they are designing clothing that is meant to be photoshopped onto your Instagram pictures and it doesn't mm. exist in real life. And Carlings, which is a Scandinavian retailer, they recently had a physical, or sorry, a digital only collection mm -hmm. of clothing that was like purchasable online you could buy it online um but you didn't actually receive the material good you got the the object f like photoshopped onto your instagram which i thought was really interesting yeah. i'm interested in digital influencers like little michaela and bermuda is bay and these uh, influencers that are sort of taking over our instagram feed but aren't really real um so this idea of the blurring of what is real and what is digital and does that distinction even matter anymore in a world where we spend so much time on our smartphones um so that's what interests me right now no absolutely um th that seems like a really cool concept um I mean, is there anything like uh like anything futuristic anyone trying to push any boundaries of actual fashion like trying to bring any streetwear out that integrates anything heavy functioning like I know people have tried like LEDs built into a shirt or like something that projects something or it changes color, right? Anyone coming out with the, any physical objects like that? Oh yeah, for sure. Like the flashier stuff with the LEDs is definitely in the rave scene, EDM, Burning Man culture. And you can find that if you're, mm -hmm. if you're in that social group and you want to wear um, light as expression, there's also light for visibility. So mm -hmm. runners who are out at night that need to be seen. Um, that's the flashier stuff. You also have a whole group of people in Calgary and in San Francisco that are making expressive fashion. So one of kind works of art out of light. Um, and these works are not meant to be worn every day. They're meant to be high fashion pieces. They're just for the runway or they're just for performance, mm -hmm. right? Um, then there's also a really interesting thing that's happening right now with brands that are experimenting with smart fashion. So for example, Ralph Lauren is looking at creating a heated jacket. They um, did the heated jackets for the Olympics a few years ago, and they are now looking to integrate that into their consumer goods where you could actually control the temperature. Um, they're, you know, Toronto company Focals, um, or North they're called, have come out with the second version mm -hmm. of their Focals, which are a pair of smart glasses that look essentially like everyday glasses, but have um, an augmented reality sort of projection on them so that you can see your notifications as well as the time, directions, kind of whatever you want to program onto it right on the lens. And so they're kind of um, indetectable as smart glasses to anybody else, but you have that extra information, that extra sensory um, input coming in. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot going on. Um, I'm really excited about technological innovation that's being used towards sustainability because we have such a problem in the fashion industry with sustainability. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this was kind of the year that the fashion industry and the rest of the world got woke about climate change with Greta Thunberg and um, the March on Climate, the Climate Strike March, uh, March for Our Lives. So, I'm interested in material science innovations like peanut leather and pineapple leather, um, innovations that are coming out that aren't necessarily digital in their end result, but they use digital technology as a means to um, getting to a new product that we wouldn't have had before. And so I think that it's it's really interesting to see where where that's going. Yeah. So can you go back to that? Like, the, uh, where does um, 
what do you call it? What kind of leather is that? Pinot leather. Pinot? Yeah, so there's a bunch of leathers that are trying to not be made from cows, essentially. Mm. Um, leather is a really great material for a lot of reasons. It's really durable. It's a hide. But a lot of uh, vegans and vegetarians have a problem with it. So as an alternative, they use like PU leather, mm -hmm. which is essentially a synthetic leather. Now, the problem with that is that these synthetic leathers have so much petrochemicals in them and they're not as durable. So a leather boot that um, is real leather will last years and years and years, can be passed down to different generations. And when it's finally at its end of life, it'll decompose in five years, right? Because it's real leather. A PU leather um, can't last generations wears and when it goes to be decomposed it takes 500 years to break down into the environment so looking at different substances like um, mushrooms pineapples uh, different kind of synthetics that can be used as leather um, that can satisfy both the vegan and the vegetarians and the people who want that kind of soft hand of the leather and the durability um, we're seeing a lot of weight being thrown behind these types of innovations in the fashion industry okay amazing um you, you touched on like the sustainability technolo sustainable technologies right um like the fashion uh, industry has taken a lot of heat about this especially for, like from zara fast fashion oh like, yeah like pretty much temporary clothing like clothing made from like petroleum byproducts um like the like there's no real regulation for all this because like fashion industry like crosses so many different territories so many different players come together yeah it's a global industry so how is that being policed or is that being how, how is the actual change being implemented in this kind of scenarios yeah well the sustainability question is a huge question are we talking about sustainability when it comes to materials as i was talking about are we talking about um ethical when it comes to the production like the the people who are making your clothes. Um, as I said, that this was a year that people were coming woke about sustainability, but it's also been a time in the last five, 10 years that people are becoming woke about who actually makes their clothes. And that is attributed mostly to the Rana Plaza factory collapse that happened in 2015, I believe it was, where thousands of garment workers died because they were working in horrifying conditions and the brands that were um, manufacturing in those facilities had no idea because basically things were so subcontracted. So <laughs> the moral of the story there is that the fashion industry has, has a lot to do when it comes to getting better about its supply chain. But mm -hmm. what's really interesting is uh, we were talking about data earlier. AI and data are now being used to tackle the sustainability issue. Mm -hmm. And we're sp specifically seeing that on the secondhand market. So, you know, millennials and Gen Z and the younger generations, they want to shop thrift because they're realizing that buying new fast fashion clothes isn't great for the environment. Um, but how do you match all the thrift that's out there with the right consumer, with the right secondhand user? Well, there's actually companies like ThreadUp that are using really sophisticated algorithms to better match people with the clothing that's already out there. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me that H&M, which... Um, you know, had billions of unsold inventory last year and were essentially taking a lot of heat for burning or throwing in the garbage their excess inventory. Um, it's interesting to me that in order to remedy that problem, they hired uh, Christopher Wiley, who was the Cambridge Analytica whistle whistleblower. So yeah. he's a data guy. So essentially, the fashion industry has too many clothes. They're overproducing and they're not matching them to the right 
consumers, that's a data issue. And so they're bringing in someone who's really good at data to try and remedy that. So this is another area where I'm really optimistic when you can pair artificial intelligence and machine learning with um, with the secondhand market and just with fashion in general. You can perhaps um, make things for people that they actually want rather than just producing all this crap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's really cool. You're really well-versed in this industry. Um, you clearly um, have a like, very well-tailored interest in this. Um, do you see yourself being like a player in this, like creating your own product or having your own fashion line or? How would that look like? Yeah, you know, I think there's so many clothes in the world already. And as much as I love fashion, I don't see myself as a designer. I see myself as someone who really stands, as I said, at the intersection of fashion and technology and who can curate. Um, or and how can, about like a startup, like in the space? Well, I mean, my company, Electric Runway, was a startup. It, you know, sometimes still is referred to as a startup, but it's just not uh, necessarily a consumer product or consumer packaged goods startup. It's a media company, meets consulting agency. Mm -hmm. And so we have our own way of monetizing. Um, but it's not based on selling a good. It's more based on selling expertise in the area. Mm -hmm. So uh, for now, that's the, the model. But I have tried so many products, whether that's smartwatches or fitness bands or T-shirts or, you know, even this light up technology that's meant for um, for entertainment and expression. I feel like uh, I, I could perhaps make something down the road, yeah. but I just I don't know if that's my 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 calling right now <laughs> yeah definitely um, let's talk about voice for a minute right like the idea of that voice as a platform now is available in homes yeah right i mean it's it's such a hard tangible thing to get around like wrap your head around that we started with like uh the radio with people being projected into the home right then we went into tv which was visual again communication coming in broadcasting in uh, in a different way mm -hmm. but now voice which is tailored communication to a from a wider entity into a home giving you access to everything right through voice commands and how do you think that's changing consumerism how do you think that's changing behavior well i think that as voice activated technology becomes more sophisticated it can be as simple as like hey google um can you reorder that light bulb for me and it knows which one you're talking about or can you order pizza from that pizza place i like i don't think it's there just yet mm. um, especially if you have an accent or if you um you know you don't speak like loudly and clearly um but i do think that there is a future in voice activated technology and voice mm. activated purchases um, it just requires uh, the algorithms to get more personalized to you um, so that you can say, like, can you buy that, can you order that peanut butter that I like? And it just adds it to your cart and it knows, um, it knows just about you. And that kind of relates back to that idea of AI. So all of this is getting more sophisticated. And I think that um, it'll be cool when I can say, like, hey, Google, can you pick me out something to wear tonight? And Google's actually able to do that based on knowing me, knowing my fit, knowing my style knowing the event that I'm going to, knowing the weather, right? So taking all these factors in cons into consideration and then just offloading that part of my brain where I have to decide what I'm wearing to that event, right? Mm. We're not there yet. Yeah. Because when I go on Amazon and I search for jeans, it shows me male jeans. Even though I've been an Amazon shopper for years now, it still hasn't determined that I'm female for some, mm -hmm. like 
I don't get that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I've noticed that as well. I mean, we think this machine learning and AI is happening right now and it's going to take over, but we're still uh, working on that. We're still getting that point where it, like, we have all this data flows now moving through, but now that's what's feeding the whole AI revolution is machine learning algorithms, but they're still learning. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure it out. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see when they have figured out at a higher level yeah. of how to process these information and, and give you more mass tailored options. But I guess the question still goes back to, I mean, will we ever be really comfortable with a company having that much information about who we really are, right? Because for a company like Google or Amazon to give you that kind of a tailored research, like being able to say like, hey, pick out an outfit for me for tonight, give me that kind of trust out there in the universe and, and like not even questioning, knowing that there'll be a great response back. I mean, to that to, to that point, it would have to have like almost like a digital clone version of us online somewhere that kind of kind of like it can manipulate to know like this is what they would like and this is what the scenario would be if they were this and did did, did that. Yeah, right? almost kind of sense, right? Yeah, I'm I'm excited for that future. I mean, yes, it is a privacy trade off as we talked about, but when it comes to like 3D imaging and avatars, there already are so many companies that are trying to solve this problem of online fit by transforming your physical body into a digital avatar that you can then try on clothes for online shopping and you can kind of visualize fit. We're seeing this done um, on e-commerce websites. We're seeing this done on smart mirrors. Um, when you're shopping online, we know that e-commerce is growing. It's difficult to determine fit. So what happens is people will order two sizes. They'll order the small and the medium, and then they'll send back the one that doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. Well, that actually costs a lot of money for the retailer, and um, it creates this kind of oversupply and this excess inventory and extra shipping. So that's a, a problem, right? Um, so having different avatars that can visualize fit you know, we're getting there. But again, just like the voice technology, we're not there yet. Like the avatars still look like the Sims characters and trying to tailor a garment for a virtual being mm -hmm. <laughs> is not the same as tailoring a garment for someone who's in front of you. And I know that because I come from a family of tailors and my father, who um, has worked in the fashion industry his whole life, has actually been called in as a consultant for one of these um, fit technology companies. Oh, and wow. he's trying to show them the importance of not only getting the measurements right, but also understanding that fit is subjective, right? Like. I like wearing my clothes loose. Someone else might like wearing them skin tight, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it's a, it's a preference thing. So there's a lot of work to be done. And what I think it comes down to is that computers right now can't, can't uh, skillfully capture nuance, right? It's very black and white. And that comes back to the idea that computers are very binary, right? It's mm -hmm. like ones and zeros. And humanity is very colorful in all kinds of shades of gray in between, right? So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens as that technology progresses, but... Um, well, what if there was like a human layer in between that, right? Like if the machine was one giving, giving a scan available to an outside like human consultant, who would then tailor a, like a actual image, right? To tailor an outfit, but then comes back to you. Yeah, right? and that's what I think the future actually is, especially when it comes to fashion technology. It's not machines replacing humans; it's humans working with machines or yep. humans enhancing the work that, uh, or sorry, machines enhancing the work that humans do. So what we're seeing is. Um, exactly what you're talking about is so the computer is able to handle the analytical or the 
kind of data processing side of things. And then the human is there to sort of artfully guide the hand of the machine. Mm -hmm. And so that'll be really interesting to see how that plays out in the future in fashion technology in a number of ways, right? Like even in the way that images are uploaded into an e-commerce website in the background right now, so much of that work is being done manually, but now there are AI uh, product suites that are coming out that can mm -hmm. help to um, just streamline that process. And so the human is the one that's making the decisions and kind of putting the composition of the photo together. But the machine is the one that's doing the meta tagging and that sort of like manual labor that um, is, is really tedious and no one likes doing anyways. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I mean, this this is like all stuff that like, like we're hearing right now. It's part of the cultural zygast, right? Like everyone's kind of concerned about where we're going in, in terms of data privacy, but also the flashy things that are coming out. People want this, yet afraid of this. And it seems to be a back and forth, tug, tug back and forth. Yeah, it's this right? interesting angst and tension yeah. that we have right now towards technology, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, this is one of the things I talk a lot about. I mean, wouldn't it be a little bit easier for everyone involved? There's some kind of middle layer in between these private companies and people uh, where data gets collected and stored. Right, just so everyone has better access to it. It's almost like a library, but it's like almost publicly accessible, but like a data storage bank, but yeah. like where everyone's kind of knows that it's kind of protected. Yeah. And that you are giving permission for someone else to see that, right? Like one of the like things. Like a I'm Creative Commons kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, I like this idea. You know, <laughs> like I like the idea of me or each person owning their data framework, just like you hold on to your your ID cards, your credit cards, right? You have this key, a digital key that access your data vault yeah and you can sell it if you want to make money or you can not sell it if you want to retain your privacy right um yeah i think this is an interesting idea and I, I do think we're moving towards this future it's just that if you think about the general public and the way that they think of in terms of technology we're kind of at this moment where there's this huge generational divide like my mother won't buy anything online because she's so afraid of having her credit card number stolen. Yeah. I shop purely online yeah. and I don't care. About yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't say I don't care, but you know, I have a different attitude towards it. Right. So we're experiencing this sort of seismic shift right now in cultural attitudes towards technology. And I yeah. think that the younger generation is definitely embracing it, but also kind of, um, checking the yeah. sort of maybe over-optimistic view that millennials had on technology, um, or maybe perhaps if millennials were too involved in social media, for example, I think that even younger generation underneath them is sort of balancing out um, those two kind of polar opposite views of like mm. the boomers and the millennials, and then and then the next generation sort of got it right. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> what I'm interested in seeing the next generation, right? The ones that grew up in the social media realm, yeah. with always a phone in their hand. Yeah, with tablets, you know, in front of their face as soon as they're yeah. two years old, they're touching surfaces that aren't even interactive, expecting them to be interactive, yeah, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, and the coolest thing I've seen is like, I think there's a two-year-old on, on YouTube, right? Like super young kid, just went up to Alexa and it's like, hey Alexa, why is the sky blue? And Alexa just told them back and just like nodded off and walked away. Yeah. And it's like, holy shit. Yeah. You know, like for most of humankind, like if a kid wanted to do that, it is like either gets like, okay, stop asking questions, a wrong answer or some, uh, some close enough, but not really, mm. right? This time it has access, like that kid has access to pure true form information as it is ready whatever it's meant to be 
I mean, what does that generation look like? Yeah, you know? and I think it's interesting to examine that interplay between kids and their technology and, and how they're taught to regard technology, right? Because they're sort of inheriting this um, optimism and angst that we have. And so uh, it'll be interesting. It will be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, like looking forward, looking back, like would you, would you like choose a restart in this generation and grow up in this time period? <laughs> That's interesting. Um, no, I mean, I'm happy that I grew up without any social media, to be honest. Um, I didn't have social media in mm -hmm. high school. Facebook was released the year that I was in my first year of university. So just as my social network was expanding, there was a social network to kind of capture that. And I thought that was kind of cool. But I was also of the age that I understood like what my professional self meant and um, I, you know, I look at a lot of these cases of bullying and um, the way things are in high school right now, and I wouldn't know what to do if I had a kid that was growing up with that, right? That's a lot to manage as a parent, and it's a lot to take in yeah. from a social perspective. So yeah. I'm glad I had it the way that, um, that I did. And I think it's just fascinating to have seen, like, the first smartphone to where we are now with the iPhone 11 and with the different devices that are on the market. Like it's just, it's just been such a rapid rate of change. And I think that when we look back, like we'll be known as the social media generation and as the kind of technologically native generation. Um, and I, I think that we, we still have yet to see the impact of that on us. Mm -hmm. Like what does that mean for us as a generation? So yeah. it'll be interesting. Absolutely. And like, I mean, we're already seeing kind of like a widespread aspect of it, right? These filter bubbles where like because of people who are who get used to interacting so much online that they get filtered out from the, from the algorithm. They're at yeah. the mercy of the algorithm on who and what information to digest yeah. that they can get stuck in a filter bubble of what of what their reality is. And people are like these filter, these small subgroups are now forming within this large entity of a social media network that don't necessarily interact with each other. Right, yeah. Right, and when they do, it's almost like, whoa, you're so alien to me that yeah. it, almost like it reacts almost like a counterculture meeting each other. Yeah, and if you think about our politics today, that really explains our politics today too, right? Like, especially in America, it's yeah. so polar, it's so divided. Um, so it's sad to see that that is one sort of result of technology, but I think that also we're starting to... I'm hoping that we're starting to come together and, and listen to one another yeah. and, um, you know, use technology to advocate for difference of opinion. I think Canada is a great example of that. We've always been a place where people can have difference of opinion, but still sit in the same room and have a conversation. Um, so, yeah, it's it's who knows? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, one of the favorite conversations like, I follow is uh, through Joe Rogan, yeah. right? which I reference all the time on this show. But um, he, he's very unique in this aspect where he's like a very liberal person, but he's also a hunter. And because of that, he's very caught in a very awkward situation where like online, especially Twitter, right? Twitter being a social network, again, that fragments people yeah. in a certain way. And even through Instagram too, like vegetarians, vegans hate hunters. They think they're evil. Right. But when you talk, when you, when you hear hunters talk, they talk a bit about a, a tradition passed on. They, they spent their, their families, their fathers, and they passed on to their children. It's, and it brings them closer to nature, mm -hmm. right? So what they're being accused of is being murderers and, and, uh, and like being vilified. But to, within their eyes, they're doing something that's very noble and yeah. very nurturing. And that's a conversation that the fashion industry is having right now as well with fur, right? I was yeah. just in New York a little while ago and 
there were so many picketers outside of the Canada Goose store on Madison Avenue and everyone was, you know, holding up signs of slayed dogs and things like that. Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to cut off your point, but (laughs) it's very much a conversation that's relevant to fashion as well. Right. And the the polarizing aspects of this, right, where right and wrong and, and people were interned against each other. I mean, that's one of the issues that social media, that it's become a, a great concern now, is the polar aspect, polarizing aspect of these subgroups forming at scale and held together by common belief, right? And, for, and, and facing off each other, like if like ancient religions used to, right? Mm-hmm. My religion's right, I believe in this, this is right, our God is greater than your God, mm-hmm. right? That's kind of what's happening right now. And where people are like, they are forming almost like this cult-like appreciation of their ideologies, mm-hmm. where it's like, I'm right, uh, you're wrong, right? Um, and I suppose that's why I like art and particularly fashion so much, is it just yeah. challenges people to be open-minded. And you can see a, a, something rock, walk down the runway or someone walking down the street in certain streetwear, and it's a visual kind of cue, and you can interpret it how you want, but... Um, it kind of challenges us to communicate in ways that are more open, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I mean, have you ever seen a faceless or have you deal, have you deal with the situation that gets that got overturned? Like you're in the social media realm a lot, right? Um, and if anything came across that stands out, like got no, overly polarized? No, I mean, I don't tend to get into these like debates on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I keep my Facebook very like sort of professional and... Um, same with Instagram. It's more just about like showcasing what I'm doing as an entrepreneur, where I'm going, who I'm talking with, this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I don't really think that Facebook is the best platform to have these like deep and detailed conversations about your fundamental beliefs and your gods and things yeah. like that. Um, it's just, uh, I think that from a very kind of not early age, but since I started using social media, I always saw it as a professional tool. Yeah. And I think that having that in mind is sort of just, um, it's been the way that I've I've looked at it and it's been the way that I've used it over the years. Yeah. I mean, I'm really interested in how like media is changing how we transact, right? Like Henry uh, showed me this one clip. It's really cool. Like in a- how different Asia is with the technology mm-hmm. because they're, they have such like, like scale there, the ability to scale any kind of like application. Um, so they're like sales has kind of changed where now there are these companies instead of having like traveling salesmen they have here, they have live streamer sales. Oh yeah. Right. So they, they people sit in front of a camera or carry a phone and like literally talk to an audience, wide audience could be thousands of people, could be millions of people and talk about a product or something and then sell it. Kind of like a tele, like a like, um, like an infomercial, infomercial, yeah, yeah. But it's like live, but and it's, it's live on street. your smartphone, right? Yeah, I've definitely seen this. It's like a form of conversational commerce, too, yeah. right? Like, um, and it goes back to this idea of voice as well, and the different commerce opportunities through through voice. And it also touches on this idea of influencers that we were talking about, because if someone is so influential that they're going to be shopping, and I'm going to be like, oh yeah, pick up that bag for me or whatever it is. Um, it, it it is really interesting to see how commerce has uh, changed over the years because of digital technology it's almost fragmented it yet right like there Mm -hmm. used to be the big box stores that you would go to or the big department stores and now you're buying you know a handbag off of some person on youtube or off of wechat or off of some live stream right so um yeah it's it's um it's a really interesting thing to look at the way commerce is changing for sure Mm -hmm. so one last thought to to consider right so i mean 
one of the things that technology has done now, like uh, the co, like I, I like talk about this thought a lot because it really gets to me. Also, is um, the co-founder of AngelList. He he talked about this idea that technology is kind of culturally changing us now, uh, back to how we were when we were like hunters and farmers. Where like each like it's more entrepreneurial, where everyone has access to a certain this resource, it's connectivity. So it's making us more entrepreneurial and uh, independent. Yeah. So each person is in, in charge of taking care of their family or like creating a, a opportunity for themselves or having their own job. Yeah. Whereas before it used to be, you know, you, gi- you join these giant corporations or entities, or organizations or governments as like a cog in the machine and you get this like dividend, like paycheck coming to you uh, consistently, a stability, yeah. you're buying into that stability, like yeah. joining into this force. But now you're becoming an independent entity that's out there like hustling and grinding for yourself. Yeah. And those who, that can perform really well and this is like their dream state right now but for those who are need some kind of guidance or some kind of issues they're really being thrown to the, thrown to the curb here right yeah well and also those nine to five secure jobs are fewer and far between because of the economic crisis that we've been facing since 2008 so it's not just technology it's also the kind of social climate mm-hmm. but it is true that technology has disrupted especially in fashion technology has disrupted these bigger retailers that were formerly doing really well and so you know like people who used to work for Sears are now all of a sudden finding themselves having to do something else yeah. joining another department store or another brand or starting out something for themselves um, but it is a cool era it's a cool era because all you need is an internet access and um, some initial capital and you can start an Amazon web store. You can start a podcast. You can start um, a YouTube channel and Mm. see where it takes you. So I think that it is great for people who are entrepreneurial, but there are some social challenges with that. As you were saying, the people who need more guidance, maybe are the people who are falling between the cracks and the people who need like the social welfare system. Um, It's not as great for them. So as, as technology changes things, I think that we need, you know, some really smart thinkers at the fore to help navigate this change. And so I hope anyways, in the fashion and retail industry to be at least someone who's making sense of it all, because there's so much happening. I mean, look at the topics that we've covered just in this short time together. Um, So my hope is to just at least be someone who can distill it down and communicate to both the fashion and technology communities, um, like what's happening on the other end. Perfect. I mean, it's awesome. You got such great answers to all these questions. I've been like throwing <laughs> a lot of curveballs at you, and you're on the on the ball. I love it. Um, where can people find you to talk to if they want to hear more about what you're doing? Yeah, so my website is electricrunway.com, and yeah. I'm on Instagram and Twitter, YouTube, SoundCloud, um, iTunes, Spotify, yeah. yeah, everywhere. Pinterest. Cool. So this is your website. Uh, yeah. Our color schemes are really in in t- tune here. So 100%, we got to promote this. Um, where fashion meets technology. And this is more like a blog you run? So Electric Runway started as a blog and then it kind of evolved into the podcast and the YouTube channel. And now we um, operate as a consulting business. So we illuminate the future of fashion, retail and consumer experiences. And then on the business business side, we work with the most innovative brands to help them on their runway to success. So there's a number of ways that we monetize it. But yeah, started as a blogger, now I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, great. And uh, YouTube's here as well, right? Electric Runway on YouTube. Yeah. Perfect, guys. Check it out. And uh, Amanda, thank you again. For yeah, thanks for on. having me. It's fun. Yeah.